You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. The first thing I can remember finding out about the writer Sally Rooney was that I might hate her. Or at least that I might feel incapacitatingly jealous of her. I'd heard about her from my friend Megan O'Connell. Megan had gotten an advanced copy of Sally's first book in the mail, and she remembers tearing it open and then seeing a letter from the publisher. It described how the manuscript had inspired a heated multi-house auction and was about to be published in 11 countries. Its author said the letter was already a well-established figure on the Irish literary scene. And then Megan saw the author bio on the jacket flap. You see her bio and it's like, Sally Rooney was born in the west of Ireland in 1991. And it's just like this affront. Like, when did people start being born in the 90s? I remember taking a photo of that bio and being like, kind of bitter, jokey, who is this? this?" The overall vibe was very much, check out this freakishly young writer who everyone already thinks is brilliant and hasn't even released her first book yet. Megan's a writer, too, and a bunch of her writer friends were already groaning over Sally Rooney. One of them had seen a billboard for the book in London. Another one had sent Megan an email that said, in all caps, do not read that 24-year-old's book. To be fair, Sally was actually 25 when she wrote that first book, Conversations with Friends. Still, Megan was extremely prepared to feel jealous of this new literary wonder girl. She was in her 30s, and where was the fawning praise for her unpublished book? But here's the thing. Megan loved Sally's writing. Her books are so engaging, and I feel like I've dropped right back into whatever time of life that she's writing about and all those feelings. Yes, it had been written by a very smart, very young person, but it perfectly captured so much of what Megan remembered about being a young person in her 20s. It even captured the anxiety she felt now when she read about Sally Rooney. How could she resent a writer who seemed to exactly understand her own brain? It gave me so much, like, compassion for my young self. Like, I wasn't just, like, a overconfident but completely insecure idiot. I mean, I was, but, you know, like, I also 
had no money and no power and no one was really helping me, you know, like I was lost. Megan wrote about all this in an essay called Girl Wonder, which I highly recommend. And I think because Megan's experience was my introduction to the book, by the time I actually picked it up myself, I felt like I'd already been vaccinated against any jealousy. Sally's book, Conversations with Friends, is about two young women whose lives get entangled with those of an older couple. Francis and Bobby and Melissa and Nick variously watch each other, talk with each other, lust after each other, and sleep with each other, first in Dublin and later in France. They do all this while also killing time online, making jokes about Marxism, and trying to make art. None of this, I realize, necessarily sounds earth-shattering. In some ways, it's a pretty classic coming-of-age story. But the way Sally Rooney observes psychology and relationships is so precise, you feel like she's mapping out emotions you didn't know you'd felt. Conversations with Friends was praised everywhere from the London Review of Books to Sarah Jessica Parker's Instagram. The LRB called it a triumph. SJP said, I read it in one day. I hear I'm not alone. Indeed, Sally now has many fans who have been eagerly anticipating her next book. It's called Normal People, and it's going to be published in the U.S. in April. But it's already been out for months in much of the English-speaking world, and some American readers have been sneaking around ordering copies from British Amazon. One person actually told me she'd seen foreign copies, presumably black market, at her neighborhood bookstore in Brooklyn. Anyway, the point is, the people are growing impatient. The people demand Sally Rooney. Well, guess what we've got for you today? Sally Rooney. I'm delighted to have you here, and I am a huge fan, so thank you for doing it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. That's really, really kind. No, I'm really pleased that we have a chance to talk. I wanted to hear how Sally thinks about the work she does, why she writes, and what it's been like to find so much recognition so quickly. How has she managed to tell stories about navel-gazing post-adolescence and love that somehow don't feel cliché? So I called her up. Sally's 28 now. She grew up in the west of Ireland. Her mom was a teacher, and her dad worked for the state telecom company. She went to an all-girls school, but she wasn't much of a student, she says. I was very lazy in school, and I took that laziness as a part of my personality, and I translated it as a kind of, like, rebelliousness and a refusal to do what other people told me. You cultivated your laziness. Exactly. When you begin to narrate your laziness as like a brave intellectual stance, like a refusal to do what you're told, then it becomes something that you actually cherish and nurture rather than sort of challenging yourself. <laughs> Take that with a grain of salt, I guess. But she does go out of her way to describe herself as a non-prodigy. When I read about other writers, so often they're like incredibly precocious from a really young age and they're like inhaling Tolstoy and <laughs> Virginia Woolf when they're like 12. And that was not my experience at all. But I had no real idea about literary history. And I was also extremely intellectually lazy. So I didn't really <laughs> care to find anything out. Yeah. So it was just kind of a process of like picking stuff randomly from my parents' shelves. My parents were really, and still are, really broad readers and would have had loads of classics in the house and would have had a lot of Irish literature, which I just totally ignored. What would attract you? Well, what attracted me was whatever I thought was cool when I was a teenager. Like, I thought J.D. Salinger was very cool. Sure. In fairness, I still, I do love J.D. Salinger. Raymond Carver, I thought was cool. Quite cool. I mean, 20th century American writers were cool to me. Anything British I was not interested in. I didn't read anything from the 19th century and certainly nothing before then. It was kind of like, oh, that's just uncool. That reminds me of sort of BBC period dramas and I'm just not interested. And it was a shock to me when I got into my early 20s and started reading. Particularly Austen was a kind of gateway into 19th century literature. And I found it funny. Like I was actively laughing as I turned yeah. the pages and I 
couldn't I couldn't believe that I had denied myself that for so long. All the things that my mother told me I was going to love, I did. But it just took me longer. And I really wonder why. Sally went to college at Trinity in Dublin. And it was in college that Sally finally started paying attention to the things she'd grown up with, the things she'd always assumed were boring. My parents are socialists and I was brought up in a very like left-wing household with strong socialist principles. I mean, my my mother raised us with the maxim of like from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And I thought that that was like a religious phrase. Like I hadn't, I didn't even know. Yeah, I didn't even know that that was Marx until I think it was like a couple of years ago. I was like, wait a second. Like something you'd embroider on a pillow maybe as opposed to Marx. Yeah, but in fairness, it sounds like something Jesus would have said. Like, yeah, it had the ring of a moral principle and it was applied that way in our house. So like when we complained about things being unfair or like... Someone got more of this than I got or I wasn't allowed to watch TV yesterday or whatever, you know, mundane household complaints. They would be adjudicated on the basis of this principle. So that was just something that I accepted as being the correct way to adjudicate moral disputes and then later realized that was Karl Marx. So (laughs) definitely there was an undercurrent of Marxist ethics in our upbringing. But I never actually read Marx until I got to college. So it was something akin to, I guess, religious faith. Yeah. Like you're raised in a particular faith and you sort of believe that it's true, maybe in some cases without having really examined the intellectual history or whatever. And that was certainly the case for me and Marxism. So you're sort of a born again socialist. You've had a conversion experience. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's like in much the same way that I now appreciate my parents' approach to literature, I've, I've gone back and realized reading the texts that had actually informed my thinking without me really realizing that they had informed my thinking. Yeah. A lot of the intellectual world opened up for me at that point. College was where everything kicked into gear for her. She was reading the classics and the theory that she'd ignored before. And she also joined the College Debate Society. Debate, she found, came easily to her. In Sally's new book, one character who's just starting at Trinity is described feeling like her brain is a powerful machine that could do anything she wants it to. You get the sense Sally's probably acquainted with that feeling. The question was what she wanted the machine to do. Sally went on to become the number one ranked college debater in Europe, a minor celebrity within the tiny world of competitive debate. And then she quit. It was after a tournament where she was assigned an argument about Bosnian politics during a championship match held in Belgrade. She knew that debating was just a game, but as she was bullshitting her way through Bosnian history in front of a Bosnian audience, Something felt different. Sally said that after that match, playing the game, making arguments as if they were detached from human experience, had come to seem depressing and vaguely immoral. Not long after she quit, she wrote an essay about college debate for the Dublin Review. It was that essay that first caught the attention of an agent. She asked whether Sally had written any fiction she could send over, and Sally had. She'd actually been writing stories all along, ever since she was a self-described lazy teenager. At first, she was mostly just copying the things that she thought, at the time, were cool. When I read Franny and Zooey, I just wanted to be J.D. Salinger and to write the kind of stuff that he was writing. And I had no interest in transplanting it to my own cultural circumstances. So it would be set, like, in Manhattan. Or, like, it would be set in the 1950s. (laughs) Because that was the only way that I could imagine reproducing an aesthetic that I found appealing, was literally transplanting it into the the exact social and cultural framework in which I'd first encountered it. So it it took me a really long time to be able to write about my own social world. Like I didn't write anything set in Ireland for like a really, a really long time, probably until I was in my 20s. And like I was writing throughout my whole teenage years. So that was, yeah, so it was a long time of setting stuff in America. What she really liked about Salinger was the way he described interpersonal connections. 
Yet all these neurotic, intellectual, unhappy people talking endlessly and writing to each other about their feelings. But none of that's specific to Manhattan or the 1950s. There are neurotic people with feelings everywhere. Like the country that I actually live in, for example, being a big one. Yeah. But also the world being populated by the kind of people who I actually know. Again, not that I'm drawing on real individuals for my work, but the kind of social world that I have actually inhabited. And being able to do that was a big step for me as a writer, I think. In conversations with friends and in her second book, Normal People, Sally describes the feelings of unhappy intellectuals who inhabit the world she actually knows. Normal People follows an on-again, off-again relationship between two students as they go from a provincial high school off to college in Dublin. As Sally writes near the end of the book, they're two people who, over the course of several years, apparently could not leave one another alone. And like I said before, there's nothing obviously exciting about that. But the pleasure of the book is the way Sally conveys the emotional logic. You can see why these two people couldn't leave each other alone. You can feel it. For Sally, that's where stories begin, in the space between two people. My ideas always, thus far, have arrived in the form of a dynamic between two or more characters. So if I come up with a very compelling single character, that's not an idea. That's just like a passing thought. But if I come up with two characters and they have some kind of little freeze on between them, whether it's like romantic or it's a friendship or it's conflict or whatever it is, it could be a family dynamic. That's when I want to actually start writing because there's something narrative about a dynamic between two or three or four people. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that it can change and develop in a way that I want to follow and track the sort of balancing and rebalancing of. Whereas one single person is kind of, to me, as an idea, just feels like, well, that's complete in itself. And I don't know why I feel that way. It's not as if I've never read a novel with a single protagonist that worked as a novel. Plenty have. But for me, it needs to be like a balancing act. And usually with some kind of power disparity involved between two or more characters. And then once I get that, then I can just sit down and write it because I know what I'm following. I'm following that disequilibrium trying to write itself between two or, or, you know, a whole group of characters. And that's what really interests me. If it's always founded in a relationship between two people and power is always part of that, it sort of means that you're inevitably going to be exploring something about, I don't know, the ethics of how human beings deal with one another. Yeah, that's definitely true. And actually, when I started writing Conversations with Friends, I found myself thinking philosophically and ethically in a different way because of the problems that I invented for myself to encounter in the process of writing the book. And I found like I turned a lot to reading about feminist ethics and sort of care hmm. ethics and the idea of placing sort of interpersonal relationships at the center of philosophy rather than placing sort of the individual decision maker, individual agent at the center of ethics. And I found that so persuasive and interesting and it really has motivated me. When Sally was a champion debater, right and wrong was a matter of impersonal logic. But the idea of care ethics means thinking about right and wrong in a way that takes into account the different ways different people are vulnerable. It means thinking about how people depend on each other and coming up with an idea of morality that's based on those relationships. Again, it's not like it's an 
answer to the questions that I encounter, but it's a way of approaching those questions and a way of framing them that says, well, maybe the basic unit of how we think ethically shouldn't be the person. It should be the relationship between people, Yeah, whether it's, you know, parent-child relationships or sibling relationships or romantic relationships, that those are actually the ethical units that structure moral frameworks. And I guess one of the reasons I find it so interesting is because I still don't fully understand what it means. So it's like, (laughs) it's so different from the kind of ethical assumptions that I've always just thought were true, Mm -hmm. like like law, like the criminal justice system are all structured around the individual decision maker who can do the right or wrong thing and then get punished or praised accordingly. And then to think about it in a different way is like, wow, okay. Well, now I need to start from the very beginning. All the assumptions that I make about ethics were maybe wrong and I need to start from scratch and think again about everything. So that's such a huge philosophical project to engage in that I definitely feel like it could last the rest of my life and I still would not have actually figured it out completely. No one's turning the pages of a book like Conversations with Friends thinking, ah, yes, an examination of care ethics. Those are the questions that interest Sally as a writer. But for the reader, it comes through as something simpler. I think if there's a well enough rendered sense of sexual tension, the reader will read almost anything. That's after the break. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Embracing nature is more than just going for a walk now and then. It's reconnecting with the elements. It's harnessing the power of natural ingredients. It's putting the earth first. For over 50 years, Nature's Sunshine has been sharing the healing power of nature as they work towards a healthier planet. Their manufacturing facility is 100% powered by sunlight and they divert 95% of waste away from landfills. If you're looking for a sustainably made herbal supplement, you might want to check out Nature Sunshine and their new power line. Power Beats are a superfood performance booster that can help enhance both performance and blood flow. And Power Meal is a satisfying protein-packed superfood shake that comes in sustainable packaging made with nearly 40% post-consumer recycled plastics. Now that's something you can feel good about. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else. 
and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back to the Cut on Tuesdays. Today on the show, we've got the writer Sally Rooney. Her new book, Normal People, is out next month, and it's one of the most anticipated books of the year. Her fans are a pretty rabid bunch. And when I talked to Sally, she described how the things that keep her interested when she's writing are the same things that keep readers reading. The reason that romantic and sexual relationships have predominated particularly, I think, is probably due to, first of all, my own whims, because I find them interesting. I mean, I just like, I find them sort of, there's a little bit of energy or frisson in them that gives the novels their sense of, or hopefully gives the novels their sense of forward momentum. Yeah. So like the page turning aspect of the books is driven by a kind of sexual tension. If there's a well enough rendered sense of sexual tension the reader will read almost anything to yeah. find out what the resolution will be. So that, for me, is like a helpful narrative principle. But then I guess part of it is also because I'm very interested in gender and I'm interested in sexuality and sort of from a from a feminist perspective, trying to tease out the contradictions in relationships between men and women, the situations in which I find the complexities reveal themselves most can often be within the context of sexual relationships. So when I'm trying to write about the very fine detail, fine grain intimacies shared between men and women. Mm -hmm. One way that it's satisfying for me to dramatize those intimacies is through sexual exchanges and sexual relationships or romantic relationships, or in many cases, friendships that have a little bit of sexual tension in the background. (laughs) The most fun kind. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I do find, so I'm trying to think about like, how little could I do? Like how little sexual tension could I introduce (laughs) to give it that push like and I don't know because so far I've done like quite heavy on the sexual tension so that like there's been a real forward momentum that has been propelled by sexual desire and I wonder like could I scale that back but still keep it at a level where there would be enough momentum to drive the rest of the narrative forward I don't know 40 years from now you can reach your late period and everything can just be like a few very loaded glances with a lot of sexual tension but not <laughs> a lot of action. <laughs> totally. Everything could be entirely subterranean. I'm longing for that and like Austin is a master of that as well that like all the sexual energy of the novel is put into somebody moving a chair or like <laughs> looking across a room a certain way and it's amazing like that's enough momentum for the whole book is that like you know when Knightley kisses Emma's hand or whatever that's like oh my god that's so intensely sexual as a moment just because that sexual energy has to be released somehow because it's so ingrained in everything that the novel is doing. So yeah, I would love to be able to do that. But so far, um, like there are explicit sex scenes in both of the books. So maybe in future, (laughs) there's actual sex. Yeah, Yeah, there's actual sex that happens quite a lot. (laughs) Although, but I've wondered about going the other way and doing them even more explicit because in a sense, the way that I've written about sex so far has been relatively coy, as in it's stated that the characters are having sex, but there's not a lot of explicit description of their sex scenes, you know, how they take place on a sort of mechanistic level. So I wonder about also doing that, like doing it even more so, because I think sometimes I, the reason I don't do that is a sort of protective instinct. Like I don't want to 
I don't want to do it because it's embarrassing or I don't want to do it because to see it criticized on the internet would be too painful for me. And then maybe those aren't very good instincts as a writer. Like I shouldn't be trying to protect myself from like what people might say on Twitter. I should be just doing whatever is true to my artistic integrity at some higher level than that. Usually when people describe a young author in terms of their youth, it seems like a way of saying that they're trendy or that they happen to be writing about something flashy and new in the zeitgeist. Or else it's a reason to fear them. Because, holy shit, how has someone so young accomplished so much? And what does that say about what you're doing with your life? When you think about youth that way, it seems like a frivolous thing to be talking about. It sounds superficial or dismissive. When you read Sally's books, though, I don't think her youth is beside the point. She's writing about what it feels like to still be wide open when it comes to things like sex, art, political idealism, or your own intellectual abilities. Things that it might feel naive to take seriously when you're older and supposed to be more jaded. Sally is good at capturing young person things like online flirtations, but she's also good at capturing the eternal experience of being young, of feeling like your life is pure potential and you're out in the world for the first time waiting to see what the world says. Speaking as a slightly older person, it's intoxicating to read. And for Sally, it can be intoxicating to write. If I get an idea for something and I'm super jazzed about it, all I want to do is sit down and write all the time. So all of my other commitments fall completely by the wayside. Like I'm late to meet people. <laughs> I don't do the washing up. <laughs> I just like forget to eat lunch in the middle of the day. I'm just working all the time and I'm very happy. And then I'm very frustrated and then I'm very demoralized and then I'm happy again. <laughs> but it's all focused around the work, which has become the focal point of my life. Um, and then in periods when I'm not writing... I'm not one of these people who says to myself that I have to write every day or I have to do a certain amount. I mean, I can go weeks or even months without really writing anything at all. And during that time, again, I go through much the same, you know, cycle of feeling demoralized and frustrated and then sometimes feeling happy and sort of content and just living my life normally and like seeing people and like cooking meals and yeah. all that kind of thing and reading a lot. And I never have any intuition of when it's going to begin again. So like it could be that tomorrow I wake up and think, OK, this is it. I'm back. I have to write thousands of words. I have to like bang my head against the scene until I make it work. Or it could be, you know, in three weeks time or maybe it could, you know, and this is obviously the fear that predominates over my professional life. Maybe it could never happen again. I will never wake up wanting to write another novel. And that's an anxiety that I I, I kind of have to just deal with because it's it's always going to be there that whenever I'm not writing, I'm always afraid that I'm never going to write again. You've written your last word at that point, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or I've had my last good idea. Probably all writers have felt some version of that anxiety. When Sally sits down to write, though, she's not just reckoning with the blank page in front of her. She's also reckoning with the pages she's already filled. The ones that made her Sally Rooney, literary wonder girl. You know, sitting down at my laptop and thinking, I'm Sally Rooney now, sitting down at my laptop and I'm going to write one of those Sally Rooney books, like the last two. And it's just such an absolutely bizarre feeling because obviously in the process of writing those books, I had no identity as a writer. I was just a random person writing each sentence as I went along with no sort of structuring identity behind the construction of those stories or those sentences. And I don't know if I will ever be able to get that feeling back now. Have you found it affecting the way you write at all? Well, I guess what I'm now wondering is whether to just write about it. Like, that's the thing. You're left with the choice of either ignoring it and trying to 
stay true to the sets of concerns that you had before it happened. But in my case, that would mean staying true to someone who's like 24, 25 <laughs> years old. And I, you know, and I, yeah. I feel like that person needs to grow. Like there's not, there's not enough life in that person yet to keep on reaching back to for more and more material. Sally's gotten famous writing about being young, but that's because all she's had time to do so far is be young. And because she's really good at writing about it. But I think she'll probably be pretty good at writing about being not so young, too. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McPhee and Olivia Knapp. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We are edited by Stella Bugby and Lynn Levy. Mixing is by Emma Munger and Andy Christens. Our music is by Haley Shaw and Emma Munger. Our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra souser Monic. Special thanks this week to Heidi Pett and Christine Johnston. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Celebrate Earth Month this April by harnessing the power of Mother Nature with Nature's Sunshine's new power line. From power greens with over 200 plant-based nutrients to support gut health and foundational nutrition to power beets that can improve performance and blood flow. Not to mention Power Meal, which delivers plant-based calories from Whole Foods to help keep you both energized and feeling satisfied throughout the day. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order.